Hello, Gregoire. Hello, Edgar. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. So here we are on the second podcast with Susan Kasuf. Yes. On climate change. I think, as we already said within the first podcast, it's a very important theme. Again, I think Susan is going to develop very interesting concepts or very interesting ideas on how to think about climate change. And I think we are going to eventually talk about how climate change is challenging our narcissism, question of life and death, and question of control. Sounds quite intense, to say the least. I think it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. It was intense. And uh, yes. I mean, people probably already experienced that listening to the first part of this discussion. Climate change is a very heavy subject. Yes. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about it, but to turn away from it is very easy because it's, uh, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. As always, you can share your thoughts, questions, comments with us through our Facebook page, Twitter, or SoundCloud. Or directly to discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. This is Edgar Francisco Danielson. This is Grégoire Pierre. And welcome to discussions on psychoanalysis. Susan, in one of your articles, there is a very important theme that you developed. Could you mention that to us in our audience, please? I think you're talking about the idea of a traumatized sensibility. I work with that notion in tandem with catastrophic thinking. When I was reflecting on who brings up climate change in sessions, and I think people have multiple ways of bringing it up or not bringing it up. There are probably as many reasons as there are people. But I found some people who were bringing it up had their own experiences of either personal early trauma or systemic trauma and had not necessarily worked through it. I'm not sure I know whether or not we ever worked through our traumas, but they were working in their traumas and toward them. And there was an openness in them that I felt I was seeing a parallel between what they had experienced in their life and an openness to what was happening on the planet. It was as if they had not been broken by what they had been experiencing, but been broken open and seemed somehow able to bear more explicitly the environmental degradation we were seeing. And so I tried to make this more graspable as an idea for myself and hopefully maybe for others. And what I came to describe as a traumatized sensibility as a sort of working model model, which is open for work by others on, that the idea of annihilation is thinkable. It's not something unthinkable. It's something these people have maybe been touched by in some way and can imagine happening. That despair is bearable. That it doesn't mean necessarily inaction, giving up, or passivity. And I go back to the etymology of despair, meaning without hope. And that there is a way of living without hope and still acting in the world, also in terms of climate. I found that people with this traumatized sensibility were able to draw strength from vulnerability and from the notion of dependence rather than 
erecting defenses. I found people were able to acknowledge living in a material body that was not some immaterial, invulnerable world in which they lived. I also think a traumatized sensibility has a nonlinear sense of time, that there's something maybe about analysis that and books written about trauma, that trauma is in the past. And in our offices, we go to revisit it and we provide the safe space of the office. I found those who were working in the space of their trauma knew that safety might not be possible in the present either, but it does not stop them from living. And I think climate change also changes our notion of trauma, that there are not necessarily safe spaces of offices, or even if we think of the coronavirus, none of us are practicing, for the most part, I think, in a safe space of an office with people. So that changes that notion. I think people who are working in their trauma or with this traumatized sensibility have an intuitive lived sense that human exceptionalism is not real, that if they've experienced things at the hands of their caregivers, they might not not sit easily with the notion that the authorities are going to dig us out of climate change or that governments or international panels will be able to fix this, but that we all need to be involved. My sense of people with a traumatized sensibility is that they're able to learn from their experiences of trauma in a way that Beyond might talk about it. And I think here's also where the analytic process fits very well, that so much of what our work is, is about learning from experience rather than just having experience happen to us. I also think a traumatized sensibility allows for the unsayable to be said, and that people working through their trauma, I imagine you have experiences with this in your own practice, that this can be spoken about. And I think likewise with what is happening on the planet, it can be spoken about. And I also think a traumatized sensibility does not mean only sadness or desolation, but that vibrancy and joy and growth and grace and all of these things are equally part of a traumatized sensibility of a way of being alive in this world. So that's the kind of portable framework I try to work with in thinking about how can we learn from the people who come to us? How can we learn from their traumas rather than necessarily thinking we as the analysts are here to move them in the direction of healing? What can they teach us about healing? What have they learned that we can then share more broadly, I guess? It seems to me that when you are referring to traumatized sensibility, that you're presenting it as, as if the person has already developed that capacity. Mm-hmm. I wonder if certainly those who come to us, some of them have worked through and or are in the process, but many are not able to put into words the unspeakable, yes. the unnamed. So if you have some pointers, how do we as analysts support the journey of those who have not developed this sensibility that you have organized beautifully for us? It's probably more organized than the reality <laughs> <laughs> actually is. As always. Right, yes. Yeah. I think that's a good question. I imagine also it sounds more tangible than it might be. I might almost conceive of this as a self-state that people can move into and out of. And maybe through analytic work or through their own work or life itself, they are more able to spend more time in that particular self-state or there's more freedom to move between different self-states rather than that being a state that they never find. Maybe that's a way to think about a fluid architecture behind such a sensibility. In terms of people who are not there, I think it's an interesting question. I might find myself hesitant to be moving anybody in that direction. 
I might sooner be calling attention to moments where it sounds like they're finding that their despair is bearable or sort of commenting, witnessing, observing. But I think they're moving at the speed they need to be moving. And it wouldn't be that I'd be pushing for a traumatized sensibility, mm -hmm. but more listening for it when it's there. The seeds of it are in the communication explicit and well and unconscious also in the room there are some seeds that point in that direction i think so there is something about this term that somehow makes me think that it requires a lot of ego strength to sustain the capacity to hold together hope and dread for example yes so it sounds to me like this is a terrain that we walk very carefully because some people may have not enough ego strength to hold together dread and hope i think i go back to my idea of permeability in a way i think there may be moments when someone has that strength or there's at least two of you in the room. So together, you might have some sort of shared strength, or someone might be able to let themselves be permeable to the more than human. And in those moments, find a kind of strength, but don't necessarily see it as static or permanent, that it's a kind of fluid movement that sometimes you're in and sometimes you're out of. In some ways, I think a traumatized sensibility might almost be an analytic sensibility. This is what we're hoping for in some ways. Life is traumatic in itself. Just by being alive, we have experienced trauma, but I understand that you are referring also to those specific traumas that we carry and we work through the analysis or other ways. But again, I think that goes hand in hand with developing the capacity to hold, which reminds me now of the holding environment, Winnicott's concept of, you know, in what ways the analytic situation serve as a holding environment where the patient and the analyst together can experience that we are not alone. Yes, and maybe also experience, this is so hard to hold. An acknowledgement that this holding environment, especially now, is difficult for both mm -hmm. analyst and analyzand. Could we caricature or simplify your thoughts through the idea of narcissism and castration? Say more, please. In the sense that a traumatized sensibility, from what you're describing, is a sensibility that dealt with unhealthy narcissism through an acceptation of castration. Mm -hmm. Not the Oedipal castration per se, but the castration of that we are almighty, that we are disconnected. Mm. That's what I hear in the terms of more than human, is the ability that some of us already developed before therapy, but could develop within an analysis, mm -hmm. that we are part of a bigger whole. And that in that sense, as you said, we are not exceptional. Yes. This is castration in my mind. Mm -hmm. you see, this mm -hmm. is what I call castration. And that instead of thinking that humans are the epiphany of evolution, which ironically is going to be demonstrated as false mm. uh, eventually, mm -hmm. we understand that we are just uh, something that started at some point and that will end at another. This is where we're going back to the question of death and the humility of our existence. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I hear. I feel like that through our discussion and through my experience in private and in professional, that the question of climate change really triggers those questions. And that when you don't want to, or when you can't, because of different reasons, deal with whatever is connected to those questions. When you can't deal with that, you don't talk about climate change, because it's just too much. It's, it's unbearable. But when you can, actually, it implies a fundamental shift within you. Yes, I think you're 
Absolutely right. It's a really good way of understanding what I'm getting at. And I'm trying to remember as you're speaking, I read a book recently who talked about the sort of four great injuries to our narcissism following Freud, Copernicus, Darwin, Freud, and then climate change as the fourth great injury to human narcissism. (laughs) Yes. It also reminds me of some early psychoanalytic writings where the Ice Age was being taken very seriously. So geologic catastrophe in the formation of the human psyche. And uh, one of the early people in Freud's circle, Franz Wittels, called the Ice Age something like the first great castration. So that link was being explicitly made at a time when climate was more a part of psychoanalytic thought. I'm sensing that when someone experienced uh, either personally or very sufficiently closely something of a trauma, then maybe one is more available to develop a capacity to contain the anxiety connected to how fragile in some ways our civilizations Mm. can be. I don't know where I was listening to that. Someone referring to how the link between climate change and now all those billionaires sending skyrockets in the space mm-hmm. and how this guy was talking about it and that he went to a restaurant and the waiter was, I don't know why, saying that he was anxious about climate change, but now that we can send people in space, he's fine. Mm-hmm. What I heard is how castration was compensated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, finally, we, in quotes, because mm-hmm. the we is very exclusive. Yes. Probably the three of us are not included in the we, <laughs> except if you hid <laughs> something for me. But anyway, mm-hmm. so, yes, this sense that, oh, finally, human is strong again. We are in control mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to be worried about extension of tons of species, of water rising, etc. It doesn't matter because yes. we are in control again. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right to draw those parallels. Yeah. I think also the other experience is something that I, in fact, see in my practice, a reaction formation, you know, once the castration anxiety is in place and the reaction formation that I have observed in not only my practice, but outside is let's think positive. Mm. Everything becomes, if I think positive, I will be able to navigate the challenges Mm. In a way that denies the castration and puts, again, the individual in the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. You are powerful because you are thinking positively. That will transform the world. I've heard that specific statement. There is truth to it in some ways. Mm. If you think positively, it might help you. But what you're describing is a perversion of it. Mm. It's like you think too positively. That's why I'm calling a reaction formation. Mm. It's a compromise that in the end leads to what? You know, it leads to a denial of castration. You know, it reminds me of a book written by Voltaire, Candide. Mm -hmm. In a book, there is a character called Leibniz. Mm -hmm. And Leibniz is always saying... The best of all possible worlds. Which at the end, you understand that in the story, Leibniz realized that everything was fucked up. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the repression, the denial that we're talking about. Like, uh, there is a earthquake, everybody's dying, but that's the best in the best possible world, which in some ways is possible. It doesn't mean it's not catastrophic. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to do better. Mm. But this sense that people will think of the world as, this is the best we could have done, so that's over. Your example reminded me of that, this kind of denial, this kind of pseudo-optimistic position, which is actually a denial. Mm -hmm. Mm. 
denial of human potential of creativity. Now, in Candide, exactly the last paragraph, Voltaire, for Candide, brings us back to the planet, to the land, mm. when he says, let's cultivate the land. Our garden. I remember when I was saying that he meant it symbolically too. I think in psychoanalytic terms, perhaps what we can read there is let's come back to reality and ground ourselves in reality and the reality mm -hmm. is this planet is falling apart uh, in this case. That's something we're going to talk about now. The question of the planet and the civilization. To me, it's a very clinically interesting move. When I hear we have to save the planet, I hear denial. I hear denial of the catastrophe that is upon us. Mm -hmm because it has little to do with the planet. The planet itself doesn't give a damn about us, mm -hmm. which by itself, I think, is a very anxiety-provoking thought yes. for many people. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I laughing, yes, I'm laughing. <laughs> 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 which means that I'm and trying to avoid something, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> Discomfort. I love so many people now yeah. in the audience. Thank you for keep on listening. For yes. <laughs> whoever didn't stop now. I agree with what you're saying, yes. The planet is not falling apart, so I correct uh, my statement. The planet statement. doesn't give a damn. Yes, we are falling apart as human civilization. Yeah. And I think that the move to hide the reality that it's not about the planet, but it's about human societies mm -hmm. is interesting to me. And I was reading a comment on a whatever forum where someone was suggesting that maybe now politicians should stop saying we need to do that for climate, but should say we need to do that to save humanity. Mm. And then mm. they should say we don't want to spend that much money to save humanity because that's what's at stake. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even among people who are talking about climate change very quickly, we do not touch on the fact that civilization as we know it now will most likely cease to exist if nothing is done to reduce fossil fuel energy. I think I would also add not just, to, or at least to my mind, not just to save humanity, but the way humans have lived or live destroys so much of the more than human environment. But that's very hard to see or feel I think for many of us, as equally catastrophic, there's no voice. Oh, but it is. Yeah, yeah I agree. We need all the spaces around us. Mm -hmm. We needed those we already lost. And it's going to have impact that we can't think about right now. It's not just about human need here, but there's so much biodiversity that probably doesn't need us, <laughs> but needs its habitats as they were or needs to be repaired from what we've done. No, yes. Well, that's a good point, Susan. Do we know that actually any kind of animal species or insect need human? Are we actually part of the food chain? That's a fascinating question. My dog needs me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we, like we're that saying... Answer. Okay, okay. So I like that it, answer. <laughs> On the other hand, we have tamed certain species so that yes. they need us to survive. And I think that's also part of a narcissism. Absolutely, yes. Where we center our human experience, we are the gods that provide life. Humans not only colonized other humans, they colonized animals and they colonized their non-living environments. Good point. Yeah. It seems like it's a human thing to do. Not every human does it, but a lot of humans did. 
I'm just sort of thinking aloud. I'm always struck by this Elizabeth Colbert book, The Sixth Extinction. She arrives at the conclusion that humans' ability to symbolize has been the problem in leading to all of this. It's not a big focus of her argument, but she says, as soon as humans started using signs and symbols to represent the natural world, they pushed beyond the limits of that world. And I find that so fascinating and troubling in so many ways. And also, when I was training as an analyst, I thought, oh my gosh, we're talking all the time about helping people to symbolize. And here, she's Mm. suggesting that this is part of the problem. So I wonder, just as you're talking about humans and how dead-endish it seems to be one, it reminds me of this as, oh my gosh, our abilities, some of the most wonderful things about us, some of what we think is beautiful about psychoanalysis, how is this contributing as well to the state that the world is in? Well, I, I think that's a fascinating point, And I think then the psychoanalytic approach allows us to hold together Mm. both our capacity to destroy and our capacity to build. To symbolize means that we are superior, or we think we're superior to other parts of creation, but at the same time, to symbolize allows us to create beauty as well. So both Mm. uh, can be true. A human's ability to symbolize allowed humans to create societies, but it's also created chaos. Correct, both. Because animals don't seem to be able to symbolize at least the way we do. But they are seem to be, on the long run, more organized than human activity that is very disruptive. Animals do have languages and song and symbolize, you know, abstract, let us have a way of sounding an alarm, for example, where they are not saying there's a predator on the loose, but the sound that they are saying translates that way. So there's something abstract Mm -hmm. happening in their cultures and their culture shift as they move geography or different creatures come into their spaces. I don't see as or you could make firm distinctions between human and other animals in these ways, but I, I'm open to those moments where there's not so much of a difference in abilities to abstract and symbolize and form cultures. I think you are calling us to look at creation. I'm using that word as an umbrella for everything, the inanimate and the biological and the human and the more than human. So I think what I hear you saying is that in a way, each of one of these Parts of the environment, creation, as I call it, are important. I think you are decentering the human being. Yes. I think there's a lot of value to centering the human being. There's lots of wonderful things about it, but also, as you're saying, lots of very destructive things. And I think we have the flexibility, psychic, emotional, physical, and maybe the duty to also be able to decenter the human and see what that means. And then, especially for us as analysts, what does it mean? And again, that's the beginning of my journey in a way to be thinking about that maybe quietly in sessions with people. Mm. As we're talking about language, in your article, Susan, you mentioned that we need a new language. Could you tell us more about that? We should also use the old language that we have, too. So okay. <laughs> I think <laughs> both and. But I think as I continue to struggle with finding words for what I'm experiencing or witnessing or believe other people to be experiencing and witnessing, I was also trying to find ways to communicate this well. And I think that there is a lot of new language around 
climate change and also psychoanalysis There's or psychology. There's someone in Australia, Glenn Albrecht, who has developed many, many concepts, uh, new words, and, and other people as well, I think, are grappling for language to describe this. And I think sometimes, for example, with the environmental orientation, I sometimes just wanted to say like, hey, this conference is so environmental. There's no mention of the more than human. Or what's with the focus on only humans in this class? I wanted a short word in the way we sometimes can say something is sexist or racist or classist. I wanted something that felt helpful and powerful to call attention to, Woo, we're missing a, a major part of reality here. So that's some of the new language push. But I think, as you said so eloquently around castration and narcissism, the language is also here already. We just need to use it. I'm fascinated by what you're saying. Just want to put it on the table. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I would like to go back to something we uh, kind of touched in the first podcast. It's how did you include the group responsibility, the power structure of our society into your psychoanalytic thinking, climate change? In terms of thinking about us as citizens or thinking about corporate culture or neoliberal capitalism or tell me your group, all of that. All of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Very simple question, you. of course. Yes. You have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the clock is ticking, please. <laughs> I think I would say that's, I definitely see our connections as citizens and as political actors. I'm still learning and learning how to theorize that analytically and st starting to get familiar with group psychology and Freud and in beyond. So I haven't made enough of those connections yet as an analyst. As a citizen, I see things differently or may apply a pop psychology notion to what's going on. But I don't know if that answers your question. We were talking a lot about how to think about and hear the question of climate change in our patients in our office from probably uh, internal psychical dynamic. But I'm also hearing those questions even within the psychoanalytic frame through how our society works. And for instance, when we were still in the democratic primary, I was walking outside my apartment and all of a sudden one person one on a bike hit someone who was walking in the street. And there was an argument. Mm. But one of the persons said, you know, it's fine. Now, oh yeah, at the Benny Sender was leading. And the woman in the altercation said, you know, it's fine. We are now in a society of care. We don't need to argue mm. and we don't need to fight. Mm. And the other person didn't care about that and took his bike and left. And it struck me as another example of how when people see among higher symbolic structures a resonance of their belief, they will feel more at ease to be proud of them. And I'm using this example, but we see that all the time. Uh, I remember in 2008, when Obama was elected, a lot of African-Americans felt a sense of proud. I still think representation has its own limits. But when someone who is in position of power or an institution that is perceived as an institution in a position of power expresses a certain point of view, then it will help push one way or the other. We had the exact opposite with Trump when we could see a lot of racists and fascists feeling completely authorized to act on their impulses. And all that to say that I cannot, when I listen to my patient and sometimes when they talk about climate change, I cannot take away from my mind the fact that we still, at least in the US, live in a society that as a whole doesn't take climate change seriously. Mm -hmm. 
that doesn't act on it. And I have the sense that if we had had people in power really engage in fighting climate change, telling us, you know what, plastic, let's be done with it. Mm -hmm. Fossil fuel, it's going to stay on the ground because we don't want to die and we want to preserve life on Earth and we want to preserve healthy civilizations. A lot of people would feel a gain of energy. All that to say that I also hear in some of the complaints about climate change and the anxiety is the fact that there is no echo of that anxiety in the political field or not enough in the legitimate place. Is that something you might call attention to in a session of noted? Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm not shy from telling my patients, well, you do live in a society. I mean, when I have a female patient talking about a misogynistic practice, I'm like, yeah, right. we do live in a patriarchy. Yes. And yes, there are things you're experiencing because there is a sense that the values are acceptable. Yes. I mean, there are so many other things you can give an example of. But I really think climate change has to be, even clinically from our psychoanalyst, to hear that it's still not enough of a legitimate discourse. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Yes. I agree. I think calling attention to that person's sort of voice in the wilderness makes sense. I also think I mean, you're bringing reality into the room, which is what Freud was interested in doing as well. And I think also wondering with that person aloud, is there something you could imagine doing about this? I think Andrew Samuels has an article wondering about the sort of, quote, psychic health of people who don't feel a need to be politically active. What's the gap there that they feel disenfranchised or dissociated from their role as, say, members of a community? What's with that? And to wonder about, are they able to exert agency in that way? I think that's a, an important psychoanalytic question. And if they're not, it's something to wonder about. Mm -hmm. It might be you wondering for yourself if it's not a question for that person at the moment. I agree in some ways that when you leave your office, don't analyze everybody around you. Mm. But still, I, I do think sometimes when I hear discourses around social issues, I still feel like some psychoanalytic concept could be useful. Well, that's another point. Yeah. yeah, concept theory, of course. We have created theories of the mind, how the mind works, and that's how we relate to each other through our minds. I think the analysts who say that analysis only happens in an office, I guess I would come to that with this is where permeability is helpful. Mm -hmm. yes. To my mind, that we're not impermeable, the offices aren't impermeable, and it is almost an environmental fantasy to think that we can separate off what is happening between two people in that formal analytic space from what happens elsewhere, any more than we can pretend that the objects in our office don't have a history, or that the computers we're using are not also part of the energy grid. You know, it is all interconnected, mm -hmm. and it's a matter of when we turn our attention to it and what happens when we do that I think can bring in new light. It reminds me when you talk about computers and how it's connected to the, to the whole network is I have a sense that also part of the denial might also due to the fact that actually Earth per se has a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. The amount of available resources on us, it seems, I mean, I can't symbolize that. It's unthinkable to me. And yet it seems like we are overusing it. Mm -hmm. For instance, for computers, like when we use a computer, we often think about how much electricity it uses, but that's not all it uses. Mm -hmm. 
the computer had to be created, all the waste that had to be produced to create a screen, mm -hmm. a shell, mm -hmm. buttons on the keyboard, like there's a lot of leftovers, mm -hmm. etc. And how to conceptualize that the pollution that we create, even through small things, is much bigger than what we tend to conceptualize first. And at the same time, that it seems like Earth is still a very nice place to live in. <laughs> with a lot of resources available. How to maintain those things, I think it's part of also of the unthinkable that we've been struggling with for those two podcasts. Mm. Mm. As you're talking about that, just the resources in our computer, elements or minerals, metals, etc. But there is something almost psychotic about the analytic practice that denies all of this materiality, that it becomes just two humans in a room who are able to ignore the entire structure that is supporting them and the sort of interconnectedness of that structure. Mm. To me, I, you know, it gets a little wild in my head when I start to go there. What if I could actually conceive of all these things? All the oppressions. Yes. Because you were talking in the first podcast of social justice. Yes. Climate change is really deeply connected to social justice because yes. our mm -hmm. computers are made from people's sweat and blood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not just a metaphor. Mm -hmm. People are being overly abused to produce computers, but other things, food, etc. The building we live in have been produced by people who are working overtime, who are underpaid, we don't have uh, sufficient healthcare protection, etc. And yes, there is a resistance probably in psychoanalysis as a whole to address those questions. But I really think as clinicians, we have to bring that up mm -hmm. because it is thinkable. Yes. Not to think about it makes us more empty. Mm. 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 That's how I perceive my practice. Well, it reminds me of an essay by Patricia Gerovici. I think the title is The Poverty of Psychoanalysis, The Psychoanalysis of Poverty. Or the other way around, uh, psychoanalysis of poverty, the poverty of psychoanalysis. And her take is that those intersections sometimes are missed in our thinking, in our work. Mm -hmm. I am quite challenged by what you are saying, Susan, you know, the lack of the material grounding of our practice. You know, mm -hmm. we're grounded on the material and we don't think of it, or at least I'm not pondering that actively. I would say that there's probably something of a capacity to also both feel the responsibility and at the same time disconnect from it. There are things we are responsible for and there are things we are using because we are part of a system. For instance, when I said that we should think about the pain and suffering that is forced into some people to create all the goods that we are using, we should think about it, I think, but we should also understand that we are not completely part of that if we want to think about it, to work with how to feel responsible and also not be the martyr either. This mm -hmm. fine dynamic that is always ongoing. I'm going to give the example of the building I'm in. Most likely it has been built by people who were underpaid and work in pretty bad condition I wouldn't want to work in. And I don't like that. And I would like a society where this doesn't happen. But at the same time, I also have to acknowledge that in my position... I am castrated by my society and that there is no way I'm going to be able to find a situation where I will be in a building that has been built with people who are not exploited. Today, it is not possible. Mm. It doesn't mean that you can't want it, that you shouldn't strive for it, that you shouldn't try to elect people who will push for it, that you shouldn't advocate for it. To contain those two things mm -hmm. 
the guild, the, recognize the pain of those people, recognize the pollution that we're creating, and also how, in some ways, how we are creative and powerful in our on other places we are not. I almost think maybe castration isn't the best metaphor for that because my association with that is either on or off. And it sounds like it's a wounding that you're talking about mm -hmm. that we can live with and work with rather than this, you have it or you don't. There are a couple of things that I would like to hear Susan's take. I would like to hear if you have pointers about how psychoanalysis could have a wider perspective in terms of the training of the psychoanalysts. In what ways the institutes, psychoanalytic institutes, can engage in such a way that this becomes part of the way we are formed, trained as psychoanalysts? Right. So if I could be grandiose for a second. <laughs> about of course. <laughs> please. <laughs> please. the end of the podcast. Please. Nobody's listening anymore oh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> I think Except you or you. Nobody's <laughs> listening. My dog might be listening. No, I, I think there's so many levels which institutes could embrace this. I mean, I think some levels are simply working with the feelings and emotions that all of us have. And some institutes are doing things like climate cafes based on death cafes that originated in the UK, where people come together in group settings and allow their feelings to to emerge around what is going on. So a processing, I think, of... Process group. Yes, maybe that's a way to think of it. I think the curriculum could be revisited in terms of where is it human exceptionalism focus and where can we bring in the more than human or where can we see that the more than human already exists. There's a lot in Freud and Ferenczi and early analysts and on up to Searles and now of the more than human environment being taken into account. Within the already existing structure. Yes. Not necessarily maybe a specific class about it, but within each... Yes class mm -hmm. to have that in mind. Integrated. Yes, from the ground up. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should be an add-on. I think it could be in my fantasy. <laughs> it shouldn't be split. It should no mm -hmm. split. It's permeating the curriculum is what I think. I think it could permeate intake interviews that the more than human environment and people's relationship to it could be asked about. It could be part of our clinical training. I will ask sometimes, what sort of time do you spend out of doors? What sort of time did you spend out of doors as a child? What's that like for you? And again, I don't love the nature split that we have. But to ask about what's your time like in green spaces? What's your time like in urban spaces? To have more sensitivity there. I think working or opening up intake centers also to people working on the front lines around this issue, activists or climate scientists being present for them, because I think the struggle many of them have with reading and working in this every day is really overwhelming. So those are some of the places. Also working with environmental groups, environmental justice groups, all of that could help institutes expand their thinking and their reach and help other people see how incredibly useful and necessary a psychoanalytic approach is. I think there's room for so much cross-fertilization here. Mm. And psychoanalysts sell themselves short in thinking it's only what happens in this room is psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Were you part of the group that initiated um, NPP's building to be greener? 
Yes, the Steps on Sustainability Committee, or SOS. Um, we <laughs> formed that several. <laughs> Very good catch there. <laughs> <laughs> we formed that several years ago with the idea of helping NPAP reduce its carbon footprint, and it was successful in many ways. I think we cut some of our energy bills by a quarter when it was in full swing, and then the pandemic happened, and the institute isn't being really populated. And so that committee disbanded. But I think institutes could do things like that. And I think institutes around the country and around the world are doing things like this, hosting conferences. Some people I hear are doing podcasts on it. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> Nobody would dare. I, I think <laughs> journals are and could devote, you know, the psychoanalytic review an entire issue to the more than human environment and environmental degradation. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think there's many, many ways people could get involved. That some kind publisher could republish Searle's not, uh, in the non-human environment because I think it sells used for $150 on Amazon. So it would be a great service <laughs> to make that available to people. So those are just some... Some ideas. Maybe not to use Amazon or right, try not to. Right, yes. <laughs> well, those used sellers through Amazon. How about I put it that way? Yes. Right, yes. okay. And the other plug I would give is for the Climate Psychology Alliance in both the U.S. and the U.K. They are great resources. They have a directory of climate-aware therapists. They have events going on. They have been talking about this for a very long time. So there's lots of resources there as well. What's the title again? Yeah, Climate Psychology Alliance, and their website is climatepsychology.us. There's also a UK version. They're well worth checking out. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Susan. This has been quite enlightening. Oh, it's been so exciting to talk to you both. I really appreciated the chance and hope it's not your last conversation on climate change and psychoanalysis. Certainly it's going to come up <laughs> again. Unavoidably <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> Yes. We might not spend the full hour on it, but uh, a half an hour mm -hmm. on it. But mm -hmm. well, thank you very much, thank Susan. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you both. It's so nice to Fantastic. see you. Take Be care. well. Bye bye. Uh, bye bye. It was an intense conversation indeed. A lot of food for thought and interesting threads that we may pick up in the future as well. So now that you've listened to the three of us talking about it again, we really want to encourage you to share your thoughts on the matter, on maybe your own associations regarding climate change, how you address it in your own practice. We will most likely talk about climate change again, maybe not as specifically as we did today, maybe uh, also, but there's no way around it anyway. It seems that as history continues to unfold, this will be more and more relevant to our practices and what's happening in the room with our patients and ourselves. Give us five stars if you like the podcast. Abstain to give us anything if you didn't. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you again for listening to us we really appreciate it bye 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 <laughs>